Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and we'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. Last week, I discussed water from a global perspective, outlining key challenges the world is facing around water scarcity, consumption of water and sanitation. If you would like to understand why I'm even talking about this topic, please listen to last week's release, as well as episodes 13 and 14, where I specifically discuss water challenges being experienced in California. In this episode, I'm going to be discussing water resource pricing, and how this may or may not be the best economic tool we have on hand to deal with our current and future water crisis. So last week I talked about water as a common resource and how it suffers the tragedy of the commons. To quickly recap, the tragedy of the commons is an economic problem in which a common or shared resource is exploited such that the demand for the resource is greater than the supply. This is more broadly considered to be a market failure. That is, market forces on their own, commonly known as the free market, are not able to efficiently manage the resource, causing some kind of externality to exist. Externalities come up a lot in this podcast, so if you want to understand them in more detail, you can listen to the very first episode of this show. When a market failure exists, economists will often suggest that the resource subject to the failure, whether that be a good or service, is not correctly priced. Whether its true value and costs exceed or fall short of the price paid for it, we advise that government should intervene and apply taxes or subsidies to see that the price of the resource allows the market to return to equilibrium. But before I get into this, I want to talk a little bit about monopolies. A monopoly market is defined in economics as a market which contains only one supplier of a product and many consumers of that product. When this market exists, competition will deteriorate as the monopolist sets the price and there is no one else in the market to set a lower price and gain market share. In a perfectly competitive market where we have lots of buyers and sellers, the price will usually be set at the marginal cost which is the incremental cost to produce one more of the product. Under a monopoly market, the price will be set where marginal revenue equals marginal cost, which makes the price higher for the consumer, as a supplier is able to restrict supply by doing this to make as most profit as possible. Consequently, under monopolist competition, a deadweight loss arises as demand does not equal supply. Sometimes though, a natural monopoly will exist within an economy when perfect competition is not possible. The most common example of a natural monopoly is of course utilities. Water can be defined as a utility because it is a service provided to the public that is essential to everyday life. Further, the market is a natural monopoly as the infrastructure required to produce and deliver the water is very expensive to build and to maintain. In other words, the barriers to entry are very high because of fixed costs. It would not really make sense to have heaps of suppliers within this market because of that. On top of this, being a human right, water is a utility that must be subject to rigid forms of public control and regulation, whether operated directly by the government or in partnership with a private organisation. Also note, when we're talking about utilities as a natural monopoly, we're generally referring to the wholesale market. So there might indeed be some different providers for you as an individual where you can get your water from, but they will all be purchasing from the same wholesaler. Now, according to microeconomic theory, natural monopolies like water supply should have price regulated such that it is equal to the average cost of the company. As a society, we don't want anyone profiting from poor access to something as important as water. At the same time, we want the provider of the water to make enough money to cover the costs of provision. 
When it comes to water though, things become a little more complicated than just figuring out the average costs and setting the price of water to that. For starters, if water were to be priced in the same way as any other economic good, the economic values of water would not be reflected in its price. This is because under these circumstances, the price of water would be determined by the competitive market at its financial value. This model, setting it to financial value, does not consider the social implications of water such that humans are entitled to at least a minimum quantity and quality of safe water. Because of this, and especially since the UN declared access to water and sanitation as a human right, we must consider water as a special good when it comes to pricing, and it must be done fairly. Effective and efficient water pricing systems provide incentives for efficient water use and for water quality protection. Now, there are four basic ways to price water in any scenario. Number one, flat rate. As you would expect, a flat rate does nothing to control demand using price. No matter how much you consume, the same rate is paid, whether that be one litre or 1,000 litres. This used to be the most common case in New York City, for example, where residents would only pay an annual flat water rate for all the water they consumed. If this resource was infinite, this pricing model would be just fine, as it would really just be there to cover the cost of infrastructure needed to supply the water. But we know that water is a finite resource, so this model is not efficient and really needs to be changed wherever it still exists. Second, a uniform volumetric rate, where every litre of water costs the same dollar amount regardless of how much you consume. So say water costs one cent per litre, you would pay one cent per litre whether you consumed one litre or a thousand litres. There are no discounts given here for bulk consumption, and this model fails to consider whether or not those on low income can afford their basic needs at one cent per litre. So while this may seem like a pretty obvious choice, on its own it is not equitable as it does not factor in the varying incomes alongside basic human rights. It's just a bit too simple, much like the flat rate. Third, block or tier water rates that can be regressive or progressive. Think of this in the same way that electricity is commonly priced. If regressive, you begin to pay less per unit of water the more that is consumed. So for your first block or tier, you might pay a minimum dollar amount per litre of water, such that almost everyone should be able to pay for their basic water needs. Once you consume over a certain threshold or beyond this block, you will begin to pay a smaller dollar amount per litre and so on. You're getting a volume discount in other words. If this same model were used but was reversed to be progressive, you would start to pay more per litre as you consume above each block. This, in my experience anyway, is a fairly common way that water is pressed. Every householder is granted a quote-unquote free amount of water that is generally covered by the rates paid to local governments by the homeowner, and once you consume above this amount, further charges will apply, but at a lower unit price. This does two things. One, it ensures that everyone has access to clean, safe water sufficient for daily needs, and two, provides an incentive to conserve water usage within the home. Note that for this to work, water meters must be in place and be managed by the entity that is charging for the water. Personally, I am a fan of this pricing model and have seen it work well in my own experience, but do note that I do live in the developed world. Sometimes this model has failed. For example, in South Africa, a very dry country that is facing an extreme water crisis, the Minister of Water, yes, it is so bad they have a minister dedicated to water, recently declared water a human right, 
causing social conflict and riots in Johannesburg. Why? Well, in South Africa, every household receives 6,000 litres of water per month for, quote-unquote, free. Once the household exceeds this amount, they have to start to pay. The problem here is that the volume of water provided for free takes no consideration to the size of the household, so lower-income communities face greater challenges to get the water they need. In some poor areas, there can be 16 people living in one household at any time, often growing their own food so they can eat. The public water meters used are the same everywhere, regardless of this, so the poor suffer more. People have begun to tap water pipes and cut meters that has led to a decrease in the amount of free water the government can offer. To me, it's pretty clear that this is a consequence of systemic racism, and I don't believe South Africa is the only country at risk of this. Now that's another conversation altogether, but I felt like it needed to be mentioned at the least. So if this block pricing model is going to be used, it really needs to consider the nature of the household, or at the minimum the nature of a community. If it is known that most of a neighbourhood has large family households who grow their own food because this is all they can afford or this is the lifestyle they choose to live, they should be allocated a larger amount of water than smaller, wealthier households who do not live this way. It must be done with equity and respect. Now, water pricing will almost always differ for the urban and agricultural sectors as the needs for water are very different themselves. Let's take a look at a case study for each to explore this. First, agriculture in Ghana. Its agriculture sector has declined in previous years, but it still remains important to the overall economy, accounting for large amounts of exports and jobs in the country. Its main crops are cocoa, coffee, palm oil, cashew, and rubber. The country is experiencing water scarcity, and throughout the dry season in particular, farmers rely on irrigation services to ensure healthy growth of their crops. A study was done in 2014 by Patricia Adam at the University of Ghana that looked at the issue of water scarcity and how pricing could be used as a tool to manage agricultural water consumption. In this study, the author suggests that a multi-analysis tool for the agricultural sector approach be used to ensure that impacts on farmers are not negative. This method takes note of the behaviour and processes for creating agricultural products, as well as the behaviour of consumers, while also incorporating the environment in which farmers, processors and consumers make decisions. While considering water factors, the study simulated how different sized farms, with varying profit maximisation goals, would respond to different water prices. It was found here that a general price for water of 43 US cents per metre cubed would have the most positive benefit on the environment while also having a positive impact on the farmer's income and productivity. This is because if, if the price were higher than this, farmers would simply reduce production and suffer. Below this price, water would not be efficiently managed. The sweet spot is found where farmers are given an incentive and the capacity to reduce water use in an efficient manner without having to sacrifice their output. So we know from this that it can be done. The price might differ from region to region, but by conducting this multi-tool analysis, governments can find the price that best suits them. We know that agriculture is the biggest consumer of water, and we know where many issues exist. Perhaps if this methodology was Im implemented by, say, California, we wouldn't continue to grow alfalfa in the desert. Yes, the change in land use would of course have negative financial and environmental impacts, but when we are talking about adding a price to something from a government body, 
We must remember that it can be regulated such that the revenue raised from the new prices can be used to invest in and mitigate any losses. Doing this can be revenue neutral, much like a carbon tax can be or taxes on cigarettes and alcohol. Now let's look at urban water supply in France. In France, urban water services are publicly owned, but operational responsibilities can be given to private operators if public operators cannot meet certain requirements. This is known as a public-private partnership and is very common for the delivery of utilities. In 2006, a law was passed in France that prohibits water service providers to use flat rate water pricing and declining water pricing rates, whereby you pay less per unit as you consume more. The goal of this law was to influence water conservation as it aimed to make water more expensive the more you consume, and it was indeed successful. Even though the country has an abundance of surface and groundwater, the number of districts using uniform pricing models, so say one cent for every litre, regardless of how much you consume, rose from 57% to 61% by 2013. Further, the percentage of districts actually using increasing pricing systems grew from 1% in 2003 to 29% in 2013. Overall, this reform increased water efficiency from 78% in 2008 to 81% in 2010, which is huge. Now, to maintain equality and high living standards enjoyed by the developed country, France ensured that water prices must remain below the national minimum wage and provides grants for low-income households that cannot meet their monthly usage bill. So it is factoring in demographics, it is being fair, and it is making sure that everyone can live a healthy and happy life. Okay, now let's look more broadly at what the UN Water Division is up to. They define water security as the capacity of a population to safeguard sustainable access to adequate quantities of acceptable quality water for sustaining livelihoods, human well-being, and socioeconomic development, for ensuring protection against waterborne pollution and water-related disasters, and for preserving ecosystems in a climate of peace and political stability. As a whole, the UN has 17 sustainable development goals to achieve by 2030. Goal number six is to avoid wasting water. They want to address bad economics or poor infrastructure that has seen millions of people, including children, die every year from diseases associated with inadequate water supply, sanitation and hygiene in a productive way to turn this reality around ensuring everyone has access to the essential resource. One of their key objectives to reach this goal is to provide coherent and reliable data and information on key water trends and management issues. During past decades, several initiatives, mechanisms and programs, both within and outside the UN family, have been collecting information on the various components of the water cycle. The purpose of monitoring is to help policy and decision makers at all levels of government to identify challenges and opportunities, set priorities for more effective and efficient implementation, and communicate progress or lack thereof, to ensure accountability and generate political, public and private sector support for further investments. A number of specific indicators or targets have been set which I will post on cavegoblins.com. They are what you would expect to see. Access to clean, safe drinking water for all, sanitation services for all, etc. I'm not going to get into each goal as I'm more interested in the how. Do remember though that just getting to a sustainable monitoring and reporting position is a challenge in itself 
And much of the work that has been done by this group is around that. Our decisions can only be as good as the data they are based on. When we are considering water as a globe, we have to remember that not everyone has the same privileges that we have in the developed world. So please bear with me if this sounds like inaction. I assure you it is not. Well, it doesn't seem to be to me anyway. In 2017, a workshop was held regarding Sustainable Development Goal 6 about water. Part of this workshop was dealing with how to use the data that is being collected via the UN's monitoring and reporting system. In Jamaica, for example, their representative discussed her country's processes for monitoring water quality, drinking water and sanitation, providing examples of how the data fed into development plans, policy initiatives, licensing and permitting for each process. Now, the licensing and permitting process is, of course, a way to price water based on actual real data as opposed to assumptions. Given that Jamaica utilises the uniform approach as part of the UN, the same methods may be able to be adopted by other countries. Out of these and other discussions, I cannot emphasise this enough, is the importance of sound data collection and, more importantly, data sharing. In reading a summary of this workshop, it came up time and time again that participating countries should integrate their data collection and findings, communicate in a uniform method, and share everything they possibly can. Now, this all happened in 2017, so I am hoping to uncover some more detailed findings and strategies by 2020 at least. This stuff takes time, though we are in a bit of a rush. There are so many more case studies that highlight how individual regions or individual countries have priced water to increase consumption efficiency. As always, I have only scratched the surface, but can say with confidence that pricing is one of the most effective and transparent tools governments and other policymakers have on hand to combat water scarcity. Whether you want to curb the amount of water that farms use or improve access to quality drinking water, data must first be collected and then monetary charges applied to see that the market becomes fair and efficient. The key word here, of course, being fair. It is a slow process, but in my research, I have found a lot of action being taken. As we, hopefully, begin to address climate change more seriously, water security will continue to benefit. Consider this next time you get to go and vote, whether in a local or federal election. This is without a doubt one of the most pressing issues of our time. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing about a few ways that water can be priced and what is happening between countries affiliated with UN Water. If you have an interesting case study or think I got anything wrong, please let me know. You can follow the show on Twitter at EveryEconomics or send me an email, economicspodcast at gmail.com. Set the show to auto-download and rate and review on iTunes. This is the easiest way for you to support the show and support the network. Thanks again for listening. Be kind to each other. I'm Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. Doug Vandalay here for Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. Each week I sit down with a comedian to talk about their career and their comedic influences. Learn about your favourite comedians talking about their favourite comedians. That's Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.